This podcast is brought to you by the Reform Witness Committee of Hope Protestant Reformed Church in Walker, Michigan. It is our goal to spread our distinct Protestant Reformed views based on the Word of God and the Reformed Confessions. We hope that this message is edifying to you. Our message today is a sermon by Reverend Slopsma on the topic of despondency and the lessons we can learn from the prophet Elijah. Let's turn to 1 Kings chapter 18. 1 Kings chapter 18, we're going to begin reading at verse 20 and read through the chapter and then go into chapter 19, the first four verses. And those first four verses of chapter 19 are the text for the sermon this morning. This brings us back to the days of Ahab and Elijah and the drought that God brought upon Israel because of their Baal worship. And now we have the account of the great victory of the Lord at Mount Carmel in the rest of chapter 18, beginning at verse 20. So Ahab sent unto all the children of Israel and gathered the prophets together unto Mount Carmel. And Elijah came unto all the people and said, How long will ye halt between two opinions? If the Lord be God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people answered him, Not a word. Then said Elijah unto the people, I, even I only, remain a prophet of the Lord. But Baal's prophets are four hundred and fifty men. Let them therefore give us two bullocks, and let them choose us, choose one bullock for themselves, and cut it in pieces, and lay it on wood, and put no fire under, and I will dress the other bullock, and lay it on wood, and put no fire under. And call ye on the name of your gods, and I will call upon the name of the Lord. And the God that answereth by fire, let him be God. And all the people answered and said, It is well spoken. And Elijah said unto the prophets of Baal, Choose you one bullock for yourselves, and dress it first. For ye are many, and call on the name of your gods, and put no fire under. And they took the bullock which was given them, and they dressed it, and called on the name of Baal from morning even until noon, saying, O Baal, hear us! But there was no voice nor any that answered. And they leaped upon the altar which was made. And it came to pass at noon that Elijah mocked them and said, Cry aloud, for he is a god. Either he is talking, or he is pursuing, or he is in a journey, or peradventure he sleepeth and must be awaked. And they cried aloud and cut themselves after their manner with knives and lancets till the blood gushed out upon them. And it came to pass... When noonday was past, and they prophesied until the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice, that there was neither voice, nor any to answer, nor any that regarded. And he repaired the altar of the Lord that was broken down. And Elijah took twelve stones according to the number of the tribes, sons of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel shall be thy name. And with the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord, 
and made a trench about the altar as great as would contain two measures of seed. And he put the wood in order and cut the bullock in pieces and laid him on the wood and said, fill four barrels with water and pour it on the burnt sacrifice and on the wood. And he said, do it the second time. And they did it the second time. And he said, do it the third time. And they did it the third time. And the water ran round about the altar and he filled the trench also with water. And it came to pass at the time of the evening of the offering of the evening sacrifice that Elijah the prophet came near and said, Lord God of Abraham, Isaac and Israel, let it be known this day that thou art God in Israel and that I am thy servant and that I have done all these things at thy word. Hear me, O Lord, hear me that this people may know that thou art the Lord God and that thou hast turned and, and that thou hast turned their heart back again. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt sacrifice and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and they said, The Lord, he is the God. The Lord, he is the God. And Elijah said unto them, Take the prophets of Baal, let not one of them escape. And they took them. And Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and slew them there. And Elijah said unto Ahab, Get thee up, eat and drink, for there is a sound of abundance of rain. So Ahab went up to eat and to drink. And Elijah went up to the top of Carmel. And he cast himself down upon the earth and put his face between his knees. And he said to his servant, Go up now, look toward the sea. And he went up and looked and said, There is nothing. And he said, Go again seven times. And it came to pass at the seventh time that he said, Behold, there ariseth a little cloud out of the sea, like a man's hand. And he said, Go up and say unto Ahab, Prepare thy chariot and get thee down, that the rain stop thee night not. And it came to pass in the meanwhile that the heaven was black with clouds and wind, and there was a great rain. And Ahab rode and went to Jezreel. And the hand of the Lord was on Elijah, and he girded up his loins and ran before Ahab to the entrance of Jezreel. Now we come in chapter 19 to our text, these four verses. And Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done, and with all how he had slain all the prophets with the sword. Then Elijah sent a messenger, then Jezebel sent a messenger unto Elijah, saying, So let the gods do to me, and more also, if I make not thy life as the life of one of them by tomorrow about this time. And when he saw that, he arose and went for his life, and came to Beersheba, which belongeth to Judah, and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness, and came and sat down under a juniper tree. And he requested for himself that he might die, and said, It is enough now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am not better than my father's. So far we read God's holy, inspired word. It was a dark hour 
in the history of the ten tribes, the nation of Israel. Ahab had ascended the throne, and he married a Phoenician woman, Jezebel, from the city of Sidon, who brought with her Baal, the god of the Phoenicians. And under her influence, Baal worship became the official religion of the ten tribes, sending the true people of God scattering. Many of the prophets of Jehovah were put to death. Others were in hiding in caves. Then Jehovah God sent Elijah to the palace of Samaria, walking by the guards, coming, bursting into the presence of King Ahab with these words, as the Lord God liveth before whom I stand, there shall be neither rain nor dew, till I say. Baal was worshipped as the god of the rain that brought plenty. As the Lord or Jehovah God liveth before whom I stand, there will be no rain nor dew except by my word. And that began a terrible three-and-a-half-year drought that brought the ten tribes to her knees. And now, at the command of Jehovah, Elijah gathers all Israel, representatives of all Israel, the king, the nobles, to Mount Carmel. He laid before them a cha challenge. If Jehovah be God, serve him. If Baal be God, serve him. You can't serve both. And he said, let the Baal prophets here, 450, build an altar, call upon Baal. I will call upon Jehovah, the one who sends fire down from heaven. He is the God that you will serve. And they agreed to that. Yes, fair. The Baal prophets started first. Nine o'clock in the morning. They built their altar, laid upon it the wood and the sacrifice. And all morning long they cried to Baal, trampling on the altar. At noon, Elijah begins to mock them. Perhaps, perhaps Baal is sleeping. Perhaps he's on a trip. Perhaps he's busy. Call a little louder. And that charade went on until the middle of the afternoon. Then Elijah repaired the altar that had been built for him and trampled down by the Baal prophets. He had that altar soaked with 12 barrels of water. And he made one prayer. Jehovah, God of Israel, show this people that thou art God. And fire came down from heaven and consumed the altar and the, offer, the sacrifice and even the water in the trench around. What a great victory in response to the single prayer of Elijah. Israel acknowledged, Jehovah, Jehovah, he is God. The prophets of Baal were taken down by the brook Kishon and all slain. 
And in response to the prayer of Elijah, rain came pouring down to end the terrible three and a half years of drought. What a great victory. And now in contrast, in the verses we have before us, Matthew 9, chapter 19, verses 1 through 4, we see Elijah. The very next day, afraid for his life, fleeing the country, so dejected that in a short time he asked the Lord to take his life. It's all hopeless. This is not a very flattering chapter in Elijah's life, is it? And you wonder, why? Why does the scripture record such unflattering things about the great man of God? In the annals of secular history at that time, the unsavory and dark chapters of kings and rulers were not listed. Only their great victories. Why, why are we told about Elijah's failure and his despondency and his giving up? Well, the Lord will have us to know that even the great men of God like Elijah are subject to like passions as we are. In fact, we read that in James chapter 5, 17, and we'll come to that later on this morning. But the Lord will have us know about the weaknesses and the failures and the flounderings even of the great men of God so that we may learn from them and learn to avoid these same failures and dark points or hours in our own lives. And that's the gist of the sermon this morning. The theme is Elijah's despondency. Notice the severity, first, the reason, second, the lessons to be learned, third. We read, first of all, of Jezebel's rage and threat on Elijah's life. That rage was brought about by Ahab's account of the day's events. Jezebel had not been at Mount Carmel. She was back in the summer palace in Jezreel, some miles away. She had seen the long hope for rain, didn't know who brought it. Hopefully, her God Baal. Her knowledge of the events at Mount Carmel was only what Ahab had told her. Even though Elijah ran in front of Ahab by a miracle, in front of his chariot, all the way to Jezreel, to show Ahab that from now on he must follow the word of God, not Baal, not Jezebel. Nevertheless, he was not invited into the palace. And we read in verse 1, And Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done. And with all how he had slain all the prophets with the sword. Notice his emphasis. His emphasis was not on Jehovah, but on Elijah. It was not on Jehovah bringing down fire from heaven 
and bringing rain to end the drought. The emphasis was on Elijah killing Jezebel's beloved Baal prophets. And that was a wicked distortion. The day was not about Elijah. The day was about Jehovah demonstrating that he and he alone is God. The day was about Israel's repentance, the killing of Baal prophets. At the hand of Elijah was only the working out of their repentance. But that was skipped over. Jezebel, he killed your prophets. This shows Ahab's impenitence and hardness of heart. The whole nation represented there had repented, at least outwardly. We'll see in a few moments it wasn't true repentance. And it didn't last very long either. But at least outwardly they repented. And Ahab, with his military presence there, did nothing to stop what he saw. He acquiesced to it, gave the appearance that he also repented. And were he had, had he really repented, he would have invited Elijah into the palace with him. He would have given Jezebel an accurate account of the day's events. He would have urged Jezebel and the palace, repent, turn from Baal, turn to Jehovah, he is God. But he didn't. His distorted description of the day's event show that there was no repentance. In fact, there was a hardening of his heart. We read of that often in the scriptures, don't we? Pharaoh hardened his heart. The word of God came to him through Moses, let my people go. He said no, so God stood there with a club one plague after another after another. Each time, Pharaoh reeled and said, okay, but then he hardened his heart and stubbornly resisted. That's what Ahab did. The fire sent down from heaven was a sign of God's judgment upon Israel and her king and queen for the worship of Baal. Was Ahab terrified? I'm sure he was. Until he got to the palace, and he had to deal with Jezebel, and he hardened his heart. And in the face of sure judgment, and promised judgment for Baal worship, he distorted the events of the day. There was no repentance. Now, don't think that this hardening of the heart only happens to the ungodly, such as Pharaoh and Ahab and those who are outside the working of God's grace. In Psalm 95, we read of Israel's hardness in the wilderness. Listen. Today, if you will hear his voice, harden not your heart as in the day, as in the provocation, when, in the provocation, when God was provoked 
And as in the day of temptation in the wilderness, when your fathers tempted me, proved me, and saw my work, forty years long was I grieved with this generation, and said, It is a people that do err in their heart, and they have not known my ways, unto whom I swear in my wrath that they should not enter into my rest. Israel heard the word of God through Moses. And they didn't like it. And they murmured and they complained. And they threatened Moses. And they were warned. God sent plagues. And they hardened their hearts against the word of God. Don't do that. We easily do that. The word of God comes from this pulpit. Young people, the word of God comes in the catechism room to you and from your, from your parents, warning you against certain lifestyles, certain things that you're told are wrong and, and you don't want to give them up. And you're not going to give them up, even though there are consequences from the hand of God, but you're not going to give them up. Your love of that sin is greater than your fear of God's judgment. Don't do that. But that's an aside. Now we go to verse 2. Then Jezebel, after the report of her husband about what Elijah had done, then Jezebel sent a messenger unto Elijah, saying, So let the gods do to me, and more also, if I make not thy life as the life of one of them by tomorrow about this time. Wow, what does that say about Jezebel? Well, it means, first of all, she ran the show, she ran the marriage, she ran the palace, she ran the country. Not her husband. She was a strong-willed woman, and her husband Ahab was not. Secondly, she was just as hard of heart and impenitent as her husband Ahab. But thirdly, her impenitence and hardness was worse she was the one who flew into a rage. She was the one who put a threat upon Elijah's life. She swore with an oath, calling upon the gods to do to her what Elijah had done to the Baal prophets, and worse, if she did not kill Elijah within the next 24 hours. What a hard, hard-hearted woman. Why didn't she order his death immediately? We don't know for sure. Was it just an idle threat to scare Elijah? Probably not. Was it to play cat and mouse with Elijah, to make him squirm before finally she caught him and put him to death? Perhaps. But God providentially controlled this to put Elijah to the test. Would he now trust God in this situation? As he had done earlier that day, and for the past three and a half years, as he faced down Ahab and all Israel, would he now trust the Lord as before? And we read now of Elijah's fear, his flight, and his utter despondency. We read in verse 3, and 
the first part of chapter 4. And when Elijah saw that, he arose and went for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongeth to Judah, and left his servant there, but he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness. Notice, Elijah fled for his life, probably immediately. And he came to Beersheba. Now Beersheba was in the southern part of Judah, to the south, approximately 80 miles from Jezreel. But even there in Judah, on the southern border, he did not feel safe. Jehoshaphat was king of Judah. Now Jehoshaphat was a godly king, but Jehoshaphat had become cozy with Ahab. Foolishly, he had desired to join the two nations together again, ignoring some basic realities of Baal worship and before that, the worship of the golden calf. In chapter 22 of this same book, we read of, of Jehoshaphat joining forces with Ahab to fight the Syrians, which came out to be a disastrous campaign. Ahab was killed. Jehoshaphat was almost captured. No, he wasn't safe, evidently, in Judah, he felt, and so he left his servant there, and he fled a day's journey into the wilderness. And then we read in verse 4, And Elijah came and sat down under a juniper tree. And he requested for himself that he might die. And he said, It is enough now, O Lord, take away my life. For I am not better than my father's. A juniper tree. That's really a broom tree. Today in the Palestine area and the Sinai Desert and Egypt, that tree is found plentifully. It's a beautiful shrub. It attains the height of about 12 feet. It's sparse in leaves, but it does afford shade for desert travelers. And it's under the shade of this broom tree that Elijah sat dejected, requesting that he might die. It is enough, he said. I've done all that I could, and I've had enough. I've done no better than my fathers and the prophets before me. I've accomplished nothing in turning Israel away from their sin. Lord, I'm done. Just take me away. I want to die. What a change. What a contrast. Several days earlier, when he stands in faith before Israel and the king and the Baal prophets, without flinching. And then, what a change when he initially decides in response to the threat of Jezebel, my life, my life, and he flees. Now he's under the juniper tree. He doesn't even want his life anymore. Lord, just let me die. It's enough. Despondency. Now the reason, 
The reason is, verse 3, and when he saw that, when he saw what Jezebel was threatening, when he saw things, he went for his life. There were certain things he saw, and he came to conclusions. And he concluded that everything was lost by what he saw. He had expected a great reformation in the nation, turning from Baal to Jehovah. He had expected from the palace down to the marketplace. The people would turn from Baal back to Jehovah and not back to the worshiping of the golden calf either. And he had expected people to come to him as the prophet of God to seek his help and counsel, not because he wanted the attention, but because he wanted the people and expected the people to need help turning from Baal to Jehovah. That's what he expected, and those expectations were not met. The very day that all Israel turned from Baal to Jehovah, the queen had threatened his life. And as he fled, it became obvious to him as he went from place to place on his journey, the repentance of Israel was not true. Nothing had changed. They had shook in fear before Jehovah God that day. But now it was back to normal, back to the worship of Baal. That's what he saw. And he concluded Israel was a lost cause and his work had been a failure. That's really what Elijah was saying under the juniper tree. It is enough. Now, O Lord, take away my life for I am not better than my fathers. How many before me have come with the same word admonishing bringing us the word of repentance. I've fared no better than they. My ministry has been a failure as those before me were. There's no hope left for Israel. It's a lost cause even for the nation. In fact, if we read on in verse 14, he thinks he's the only one left in Israel. Listen, and he said to God, I have been very jealous for the Lord God of hosts because the children of Israel have forsaken thy covenant, thrown down thine altars, and slain thy prophets with a sword. And I, even I only am left, and they seek my life to take it. On the basis of what he saw, it was all done. Lord, just take my life. This was a weakness of faith in Elijah. James chapter 5 refers to the event of Carmel in connection with Elijah. Verse 17 and 18. Elias, 
No, starting with verse 16, the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much, has much power. Elias, Elijah, was a man subject to like passions as we are. And he prayed earnestly that it might not rain, and it rained not upon the earth by the space of three years and six months. And he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth brought forth her fruit. The point I want to point out, the, the point I want to make here is, Elijah was a man subject to like passions as we are. He was no superman. He had great faith. He was a great man of God, but he had also great weaknesses, and his faith could at times be very, very weak. And we see both extremes here, don't we, with Elijah? What great faith was displayed at Mount Carmel? He stood fearlessly after three and a half years of drought, after the king had been looking for him, after everyone had blamed him for the drought. Here he stood alone before all Israel, before the king who said, you're the troubler in Israel. He stood before the prophets of Baal, all alone. As the representative of Jehovah, and by prayer, called down fire from heaven and a rainstorm to end the drought. What faith that took. What a strong faith, trusting in Jehovah God to protect him and to use him. But now, almost immediately thereafter, we see Elijah reacting not by faith, but by sight. In the weakness of faith, Elijah lost sight of some important realities of the covenant. Wasn't Elijah Jehovah's servant to be used to accomplish the great purpose of Jehovah God? And wasn't it true that Jehovah's purpose is not always to have a great reformation take place in response to his word? Isn't there the hardening purpose of the word of God? And would not Jehovah care for Elijah in the face of Jezebel's threat? During this terrible drought, Jehovah had taken care of him, first at the brook Cherith, where he fed him day and night with food sent by ravens. And when the brook dried up to Zarephath, miracle day after day, the same little meal and oil was multiplied to provide for him and the widow of Zarephath and her son. Would not God care for him now? And were not God's people still in Israel? If none were left and he alone was left, Israel would not exist anymore. They would have been swept away as they were some decades later. But he lost sight of that, which he could see and apprehend only by faith. Instead, he went by sight, what he saw with his eyes and what he concluded with his own human reasoning. 
The nation had not repented. His life was being threatened. He fled for his life, finally in despondency. It's a lost cause. Lord, Lord, just take me away. The third point, the lesson to be learned. Two points here, A and B. We learn her first how often the saints of God suffer spiritual collapse shortly after victories of faith. Let's go back to the nation of Israel itself. When they went out of Egypt, after the 10 plagues, God led them to the sea, the shore of the Red Sea, and they were boxed in by the mountains on the west and on the south. The sea was here, and now Pharaoh comes with his army. He changed his mind. Moses raised his rod, opened the sea with a great wind. Now go through. By faith they went through. And that required a lot of faith. What if, ha well, what if we're in the middle of there and, the, and those walls collapse? Trust the Lord. And they did, and by faith they went through. And when then Pharaoh and his host tried to do it, then the walls of water collapsed and destroyed Pharaoh and his army. By faith, they escaped out of Egypt. And that was a great faith. Not too long later, a year and a half later, they're at the southern border of Canaan. Kadesh Barnea. Twelve spies are sent out. They come back with tremendous reports and some of the some of the crops and the proof of the, of the honey and the wealth of the land. But 10 spies are all concerned. We can never take the land. They've got giants there. Must have had the ancestors of Goliath. They live in walled cities and the people were, were in despair and, and they became angry. Where was their faith? The God who destroyed Egypt, couldn't he take the land of Canaan for them? Where was their faith? It was gone. Well, what happened to the nation there happens to individuals of God's people too. They suffer depression and despondency soon after they weather a great storm of faith. I've seen it. I've seen it as a pastor. I've seen it with widows. Usually men die before their, their spouses. I've seen widows becoming the caretaker of their dying husbands by faith, gathering together all their strength instead of lamenting what they're going to lose. They look forward and hope with their husbands, strong in faith, and then when the Lord takes them, their husbands, I've seen widows completely collapse, despondent. Why am I here? No reason to live anymore. They're sitting under their own juniper tree. I've seen it. I talked to a Christian counselor once, different direction, who did a lot of work with alcoholics who were Christians. And he said, you know what I found? When uh, those who were struggling with alcohol addiction, 
and they had become sober for some time, and they met a crisis. They did well through the crisis. But again and again, after the crisis is done, they fell off the wagon and they went back to drinking. It happens repeatedly. And that's what happened to Elijah. A great, great faith, a great victory of faith, and then a complete collapse where their faith doesn't hold them up, that didn't hold them up. What accounts for that? Well, there's two things. First of all, there's often after a great work of faith, relying upon all your spiritual reserves, there is emotional and physical exhaustion. That's part of it. And the second part is to let down your guard. You've weathered it. You met the enemy. You've met the devil. You've overcome. And now you let down your guard. And the devil knows when to strike. The devil never ceases to look for opportunities, especially when we are vulnerable to attack. And he often attacks after a great victory of faith when we are exhausted spiritually, mentally, emotionally, and perhaps overconfident. And we have to be prepared for this. I'm going to apply this in a couple different ways. Many of us have besetting sins. In the churches, I don't know the Hope congregation anymore. I've been gone over 26 years. But I do know that within the Christian community, there are many who have a problem with alcoholism, drunkenness. They drink too much. With others, it's pornography. There's a strange phenomena developing, and that is cutting, especially among young girls. I've learned the dynamics of that. The emotional pain is so great that to inflict physical pain, especially through cutting or burning yourself, it alleviates the, the emotional pain as you focus on the physical pain. And, and these and other sins are often developed and cultivated as ways to deal with the harsh realities of life or to escape the harsh realities of life. It's an escape. That's what a lot of sins are that beset us. And it's very easy when by the grace of God you have brought these sins under control. And they will even weather a great storm of, of faith in a crisis. But afterwards, you're vulnerable to fall back into these sins. Watch that. Be on guard for that. And then another direction. It's easily, we easily become despondent after we have dealt with some serious problems. And by faith, 
have gone the right direction and they've come out favorably or the, 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 the solution has been resolved, that God in His providence sends more problems and we become despondent. And the faith that led us to, to deal with the first problem and crisis just isn't there. When the second or the third comes, ministers can have that. Parents can have that in dealing with finances and with their children and teenagers. It very easily happens. Be on guard. And when we find ourselves in those situations, don't deal with them alone. The strength of God in Jesus Christ comes through your prayer, through the Word of God, but not in isolation. It comes through the prayers of your fellow saints and the words of encouragement of your fellow saints and the accountability of your fellow saints as well. Don't forget that. That's something we can learn from this chapter in Elijah's life. That first of all. And I got just enough time for the last part. Now the next thing is we must learn to live by faith and not by sight. Apostle Paul, 2 Corinthians 5, verse 7, For we walk by faith, not by sight. This is in the context of death. When we're here, we are absent from the Lord, but when we die, we know we will be present with the Lord. You can't see that with your eyes. That's something that you know by faith. We walk not by sight, but by faith. And that must characterize us in all of life. We are not to live by sight. That is, not to evaluate a situation simply on the basis of what we see and what we know from an earthly point of view. Our sight is very limited. It's very faulty. We only see a little piece of the pie. We don't see things in their grand perspective. We only see a little bit. When tragedy strikes, when difficulties come, we only see a little bit. And with our limited insight, we often conclude incorrectly that the situation is hopeless, that God's promises have failed, that all things are against us. The whole thing is lost. And we begin to flounder spiritually when we live by sight. How important it is to live by faith. What wonderful promises God has given to us. He promises in his word in many different places, in many different ways, I will provide for you, my people, body and soul. For time and eternity, you shall never lack. And I will make all things work together for your good and salvation. Nothing shall work against you. All things are for your sakes. 
nor will I ever leave you nor forsake you, no matter what it may seem to you. And not only has God made those promises, but he has secured those promises in the perfect sacrifice of his son. He has secured our salvation. These are no empty promises he makes. They're based upon the perfect sacrifice of Christ, and they're made by the one who is all-wise and all-knowing. We only know a little bit of the picture. God sees the whole picture. He knows all his works from the beginning to the end. And he is all-powerful. With his wisdom and love, he will accomplish all that he promises. And so the calling to us comes, trust him. There's a favorite passage of mine. I know it by heart, but sometimes when I'm in the middle of a sermon, I don't remember it. Proverbs 3, verses 5 and 6. Trust in the Lord with all thy heart. And lean not on thine own understanding. Don't live by sight. Don't lean on your own understanding and conclusions. Trust the Lord with all thy heart. In all thy ways, acknowledge him. Acknowledge Jehovah for who he is. And he shall direct thy paths. And when all seems to be lost, and everything is against us, then we must know Jehovah is merely trying our faith for us to grow and grow and grow. Now I want to apply this in two different ways. There is much concern, and rightfully so, the way our country is going as far as tolerating the Christian community. We had a president who protected the rights of the church to do and to worship according to the will of God, even though I don't think he's a man of God at all. Now we have an administration that has catered to the anti, growing anti-Christian sentiment in our country. And we have reason to believe that trouble is coming. And we've talked about it. And people are worried about it. This is not a time to live by sight. To worry, to fret, to wring our hands. And especially if we see the place of the Christian church with our Christian schools becoming narrower and narrower so that we hardly have a place to stand. And that's the idea of persecution in the original. Then we're not to despair. We will if we live by sight. Leaning on our own understanding. Drawing our own human conclusions. Hasn't God promised to make a blessing out of persecution? Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Blessed, happy persecution in the past and 
will in the future, according to God's word, turn out to be a blessing. In spite of all the losses and all the hardship, it will be a blessing. Do you believe that? Do you trust God? This puts our faith right to the test, doesn't it? And hasn't the Lord told us these are coming? Isn't this one of the signs of his coming? When we see this, we know Christ is at work. He's making all things ready for his return and the full establishment of the kingdom that will last forever. Do you trust him? Live by faith, not by sight. The second thing I want to apply, make this application for is the controversy that has rocked our churches and still is in the process. It's rocked especially Hope Church here. It's been an ongoing struggle for several years here, resulting in a loss of many, many members, and it hurts. The same thing has happened in Byron Center, to a lesser degree, perhaps, in Southwest. And we don't know what the end is going to be. Are more going to leave? Are we going to lose more ministers? Where will it all leave us? What's going to happen to our Christian schools? We can easily despair, especially when as a congregation, you've been the one who's been embroiled in this for several years. I'm from First Church. We, we view it from afar. You've been embroiled in it. I know from the testimony of some of you, there were times when you hardly wanted to come to church. You could hardly worship because of all the upheaval in the congregation. And where is it all going to end? What's going to happen? Let's not live by sight. If we live by sight, we're going to worry, be full of anxiety. What about our Christian schools. What about the church? I've got family members that are, that, that a son or a daughter or, 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 or extended family that, that is inclined to go there or has gone there. What, what does this all mean? Let's not live by sight. Let's live by faith. Let's live by faith. God promises that he will preserve his church. And that for those who are faithful to him, he will preserve them and preserve them in their generations. Do you trust the Lord? In spite of everything that you see and have seen, do you trust him? And the Lord promises, all things are for your sakes. All things work together for good to them that love God and are called according to his purpose. And you say, what good could ever come out of this? Well, I don't know for sure. But sometimes the good that comes out of adversity is God is chastening us. He does that individually. He does that for families. He does that for church and the denominations. Is God chastening us? 
If he is, it's a good thing. And we ought to consider that. Is the Lord getting our attention of something that we need to address, that we need to correct? If that's true, and I'm not saying it is here in hope, but if that's true, that's a good thing. But even if there's not something that has to be corrected, when God sends a church and a family and his people through things like this, he tests our faith. And the result is we have to use our faith. And as we use our faith and learn to cling to him, we grow in faith and we become much stronger. You believe that? Trust the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him. He'll direct your paths. And then there's Psalm 62. Truly my soul waiteth upon the Lord. My expectation is from him. We don't know all that's going to happen, the whole fallout of this whole situation. But God does. Psalm 62, go home and read it. Read it for your devotions today. I suggest. Wait on the Lord. Wait for him to work. From him comes my expectations. I expect good things from the hand of the Lord. That's living by faith. And that's what we must do in every situation. May God grant that. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message. It is our hope that it was edifying to you. Please subscribe to our podcast wherever you listen to them to be notified as future messages are published. We welcome you to join us on Sundays for worship at 9.30 a.m. and 5 o'clock p.m. You can find more information about us at our website, hopeprchurch.org. Also, you can follow us on our Hope Protestant Reformed Church Facebook page. And you can email the Reform Witness Committee with any questions or feedback at hoperwc at gmail.com. Thank you.